0: Researchers want to hear from patients. Patients and their families want to be involved. Why is this so hard to do? My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me a chance to learn about many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. We think that if patients and researchers got to know each other as people, the conversations would be much easier to start. Each month on Unprobable Developments, I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. This month on Improbable Developments, we are introducing our Emerging Researchers series. In this series, we will be talking to some people who are just starting their scientific careers. Our hope is by hearing their stories, including their ambitions and worries, you will be able to learn more about what it takes to pursue a career in science. Today, we are visiting with Lane Rodden, a PhD candidate at the Oklahoma Center for Neuroscience at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. She has been working in the lab of Dr. Sanjay Bidhi Chandani, who is a leading expert on Friedreich's ataxia, a neurodegenerative disorder. You are so close to reaching your Ph.D., but let's go back. When did you first have an interest in pursuing science?
1: Really as far back as maybe middle school, as far as I can remember, I've always just been so intrigued with science in general and specifically uh, sort of human physiology. I remember my parents would take us to bookstores and I would always be, my my siblings would be over in the the kids section or whatever, but I would be in the back looking at human anatomy atlases. And I I was just fascinated by what was underneath the skin that we can't see for humans and uh, sort of just developed that love for science over time through middle school, through high school, Um, and then decided to formally study science when I went to college.
0: So what did your parents do? Did they have interest in science or work in science at all?
1: Yeah, so my dad, uh, he worked in computer IT, but definitely had a love of science all his own, and I think uh, tried to sort of hand that down to me over the years, and I think that it definitely worked. Uh, He always strongly encouraged me to participate in science fairs through middle school, Um, Any kind of research experience that I could get, he was was all on board for that.
0: So where did you go to school for your undergrad, and, and what did you study?
1: For college, I went to University of Oklahoma, and this is in Norman, Oklahoma, and I studied biochemistry.
0: And why biochem?
1: Well, I think my first science love was always chemistry. That's something that I sort of discovered in high school and just really kind of grew with me as time went on. But I always, I always did have this interest in biology, and at this point, sort of started becoming more interested in pharmaceuticals and drugs and human diseases, and started kind of poking around and learning more about um, how, specifically with genetic diseases, how uh, just a very small change in the genome. So after I started learning about the genome and DNA, just Learning that a very small change can cause such a devastating effect was just absolutely fascinating to me. And I wanted to know more about it.
0: So as you were going to school in your undergrad years, what experiences sort of shaped your thinking about what your next steps would be after you graduated?
1: Yeah, so uh, to be completely transparent, I changed my major a few times in college. Um, Maybe I'm not the only one that did that. Uh, so, So I started off thinking I wanted to go to medical school. And so I was studying chemistry, uh, doing pre-med. And then at some point something switched and I, I think I learned a little bit more about what doctors and physicians actually do and decided that I didn't really like that as, as much as I originally thought. And uh, so I had a phenomenal advisor at University of Oklahoma and he suggested, you know, why don't you go do some, uh, some science research in the, the research center that we have on campus. And so he connected me with a few professors and uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to do research for a couple of years in a lab on campus. And I just absolutely loved it.
0: What'd you love about it?
1: I loved the discovery part. I loved that we were studying things that nobody else in the world knew the answer to. I loved that uh, there was a, a creativity aspect where Uh, You know, our project sort of focused on a central question, but we were able to individually use our own creativity to sort of shape where the project went and what kind of experiments that we would do. And with that also comes the responsibility of uh, owning up to when things don't work and problem solving. And uh, so it's kind of like a big puzzle. I think that's a big part of why I liked it.
0: Being a biology major myself, when you go through the labs, the experiments that you do when you're taking a laboratory course, you know, you're taking microbiology or anatomy or whatever, the things you do there, there's an answer you're supposed to get. You're repeating somebody else's experiment. You're following a recipe. But what you're talking about is there is no recipe. There's just questions. And it's, it's a lot of fun. And it's also, <laughs> you, you can say, oh, it didn't work. And it's not like your grade just dropped. No, it didn't work. Now you just have another problem to solve and it's okay. That's what happens. Where I can remember in my undergrad career, writing several lab reports saying, well, I think I had a technical error because the answer didn't really come out like it was supposed to. And, <laughs> and then I have to explain the theory. As you approach graduations, what options were you weighing and what drew you toward your current work?
1: I think really the research experience shaped what I ended up doing next. I, I was having a great time in, in the lab during college and I wanted to do more of that. Uh, so, so I looked into different programs and found the one that I was in now, looked at the, the course list and uh, also noticed that at, so for college I was at the, the University of Oklahoma um, undergrad campus, but we also have a medical center and the research that goes on at the medical center where I'm at now is uh, obviously a, a little more medically focused, um, which, again, is something that I've, I've always been fascinated with. And so looking at the research labs, uh, thinking about different projects that I could do and uh, looking at the classes that I would take with this program is really exciting to me. So I decided to apply.
0: Great. And how does the program work there at Oklahoma Health Science Center?
1: The program works. I think it's similar to most um biomedical PhD programs in the US. It is uh, a a straight bachelor's to PhD program and it's usually about five or six years. So the first year there were I think around 20 students in my class and we all take sort of core molecular and cell biology classes that are taught by the professors. During that time we're also doing what we call rotations in labs and so uh, students will choose three or four different labs and they'll spend Uh, something like six weeks in each lab, and it's sort of to try out the lab to see uh, what's the culture of the lab, what kind of projects are going on here, um, what kind of experiments would I be doing, um, how does this mentor uh, sort of run this lab, is this person sort of in the lab and really hands-on, or is this person more uh, sort of hands-off, is it a big lab, is it a small lab, there are a lot of considerations, and they're all important for deciding where you're going to spend the next really intense five years of your life. Uh, So that's the first year. And then after you make the big decision, the rest of the time um, is more like a job instead of school. uh, You're not in formal classes anymore. You're just going to the lab every day and you're working on your research project. Um, You're doing lab experiments, you're analyzing data, you're putting together presentations and going to conferences um, until it reaches a critical point where uh, your committee decides that you are finished.
0: They just call you and say, "Surprise! Today's the day." No, that's there's,
1: right. <laughs> there's much more.
0: In, much more that goes into it. So, so how did you end up working on Friedrich's ataxia?
1: So, I actually didn't know anyone that had Friedrich's ataxia before I started this. I'd never heard of Friedrich's ataxia. Um, the story is kind of interesting. So, when I was still in college, I uh, enrolled in a summer research experience at the campus that I'm at now. And this was for undergraduate students to see if they were interested in this PhD program. And the lab that I was blindly assigned to, which is how it worked, uh, was actually next door to Dr. B. D. Chandani's lab, the lab that I'm in now. And I loved the lab that I was in. It was great. It was more um, basic science. It was sort of protein biochemistry, which is what my skill set was at the time. Uh, But I would peek in next door every now and then and see um, the projects that were going on in Dr. Vini Chandani's lab, which were more sort of human disease focused, which uh, com- I keep coming back to that, it was always just really fascinating to me. And so while I loved the, the basic uh, sort of really important structural biochemistry stuff that I was doing, I, I wanted to know more about genetic diseases and, and human disease research that was going on next door. And so that's, that's sort of how I met him and was introduced to Friedrich's ataxia. And then when I when I started graduate school the next year after that program, uh, his lab was one of the labs I chose to do a rotation in. And it just sort of solidified what, what I had been interested in that summer before. Uh, it, the, the project was just absolutely fascinating to me. And, and I loved the idea of getting to be part of the FA community, which has been just an absolutely enriching experience. And that was something that Dr. Bidi Chandani um, explained to me early on that I would be obligated to uh, be a part of this community. And I I would need to be able to explain to families what it is that I'm doing in the lab and how it's going to help them and where their treatments are and why are things taking so long. And, and uh, it's kind of terrifying at first, but I also, I liked the idea of that challenge. And then the last reason I think that I, I joined the lab was seeing through Dr. Bedi Chandani how ambitious and excited this community was. And that was sort of my first introduction to the rare disease space uh, was seeing all of the fundraising that was being done, all of the activities. And it was just, I mean, this community is just on fire with ambition. And I wanted to be a part of that.
0: Yeah, it's very attractive to, to someone with a curious mind. You get into the rare disease community writ large. And you, you feel this energy that's that's happening. And you just want to tap into that energy and say, how do I become part of that? And how do I help? For Friedrichs Ataxia, F.A., it's it's a special community. They're very close. Um, very few people have it, about 1,500 in the U.S. So you get to know them and, and you get to know those people. And they're also looking forward to finding a treatment and they're also looking forward to finding a treatment maybe not for themselves but for people who are coming after them and just that sort of love that flows from them i also find they're all very smart they've got a sense of humor um, and it's they're fun to be around Um, they're really fun to be around so tell us about the project that you're doing now what are you doing specifically in fa and and you know, go a little geeky here and tell us about the science. Uh,
1: so, so for my project, when I first joined the lab, uh, we have recently discovered a new gene silencing signal in FA. And just to back up, so we know in we know in FA Friedrich's ataxia, this gene that we call taxin is silenced. So it's essentially turned off; it's not working correctly. And what we focus on, sort of big picture in our lab in general is uh, different mechanisms that the cell might be using to silence this gene. Uh, so genetic and what we call epigenetic mechanisms of gene silencing is what we're interested in. And So at the beginning of my project, we had discovered a new gene silencing mechanism that hasn't been studied in FA before. It's called DNA methylation. And DNA methylation is a classic gene silencing signal that cells use for silencing genes and not just in disease. So this is an important part of just regular physiology uh, during development or for tissue-specific expression of genes uh, during stress responses, etc. But it just turns out that there is an abnormally large amount of this gene silencing signal in the frataxin gene in people who have Friedrich's ataxia. And so my project really focused on trying to figure out what is the function of this this silencing signal in FA. We know what its function is in, in other cases, so in development or in tissue specific expression, but is it actually participating in the gene silencing in Friedrich's ataxia? And the reason this is important is because the more we know about mechanisms that are being used to silence this gene, the more drug targets we have to try and sort of reverse what's going on in FA to improve symptoms.
0: And so what kind of drug targets are you guys contemplating? So
1: so we're interested in looking at DNA methylation and other epigenetic silencing signals to really tease out the, the pathophysiology of how this gene is silenced in Friedrich's ataxia.
0: As you're going through this research, and you've been doing it for several years now and, and working on your degree, what's been the biggest challenge, either scientifically, technically, or other challenges, to finishing that degree, and how did you overcome uh, it? lab
1: is, I would say, relatively small. There was one postdoc that was in the lab when I joined, and he was at the end of his postdoc studies and was getting ready to leave. And so he was there for about the first year of my studies. And then all of a sudden he left and I, as a second year student, was the senior most person in our lab. Uh, And that was extremely intimidating. And I didn't feel like I was trained enough to do this. I didn't have the knowledge to develop new assays and so on. So at one point I decided, you know, if this is going to work, I'm going to have to be resourceful. I need to find people on campus that can help me with developing new methods that aren't in the lab. I need to read the literature. Um, I need to do whatever it takes to become the functional most senior person in the lab. And so one particular um, event that happened is, and this is kind of technical, uh, so I'll I'll try to spare you on the, the details, but we're trying to, we're trying to develop a method to get foreign DNA inside of our patient cells called transfection or infection. And it turns out that the cells that we use, they're usually skin cells or blood cells, are particularly difficult to manipulate. Uh, They really don't want foreign DNA inside of cells. So instead of the sort of typical methods that I was familiar with and that I had learned uh, previously, we needed to develop a viral system to infect these cells, which is a little more of a potent way to convince the cells if you will to take up this foreign dna Um, and i I knew that this was the answer but i had no idea how to make this happen Uh, so i went to the literature and i found 50 different protocols for the right way to do this and was just absolutely drowning Um, but lucky for me everybody on our campus is really collaborative and so i was able to find a researcher uh, who is an expert in in lentiviral infections, and called him up and said, hey, can I come shadow you for a day? He said, absolutely. Um, he gave me all of his protocols, and it really it cut down on the amount of time and frustration that I think it would have taken me to uh, figure out how to do that. And so in the end, it worked, and now we're able to manipulate these patient cells in ways that we were not able to before.
0: That's a very good example that you use because – you showed problem solving, you showed initiative, you showed curiosity, you showed the ability to to research and then ask for help, um, which in a collaborative world, that's what many people don't learn how to do, is to ask for help. And once you learn how to ask for help and you get help and you say, wow, that problem's in the past. What's the next one? And you can just keep building on that. So when do you expect to be finished with your with your doctorate?
1: So, at this point, it's still kind of a moving target, um, but I, my best estimate is probably end of January or beginning of February. That's what I'm aiming for. Um, we are finishing up a publication, and after that, I will be in full thesis writing mode, and um, it's just a matter of finishing up the thesis and doing my final thesis defense presentation.
0: So, we first met at the... Uh Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Friedrichs to Texas Symposium about a year ago, where you won a very thrilling contest. So could you tell our listeners about that contest and how you won?
1: Yeah, definitely. This is uh, one of my favorite types of contests. So so this contest, people will call it a flash talk, or some people will call it a three-minute thesis. And the idea here is for researchers to sort of boil down their PhD project Uh, to a three minute talk, you get no PowerPoint presentation, you get one static PowerPoint slide to help you with visuals. And the last thing is uh, you're presenting to a non-science audience. So the point is to to really sit back and think about what it is that you're doing. And and the exercise of having to explain this to a non-science audience really, at least for me and a lot of my friends I know that have done this too, it, it helps me to figure out where are my gaps in knowledge? Do I, do I really understand what it is I, I think I'm studying or the question that I think I'm asking? And, and also, why is it important? And particularly in this case, because the audience here was patients and their families. Um, and so, so this, this patient community is very engaged, as you say, and smart, and they are interested in the science, but I think more so than that, they want to know what does this mean for them? Why am I spending all of this time in the lab doing these experiments? Uh, so, so this is so that's the competition and uh, the challenge is to come up with for for me I like to do it um, to come up with fun metaphors that everybody in the audience will understand. So I think in this particular case I used a cell phone uh, to explain my my thesis project, and um, I think the audience understood it and had a lot of fun with it. Uh, so it was a success.
0: It it was amazing the way you used that metaphor and captured some of the kind of deeper understanding of fa you know you talked about energy loss and energy management and and all of that by using you know the battery power level that's there still you talked about other parts of it and how you know things aren't functioning because you've got this other thing going on everyone was like wow this you nailed it and what was for me what was really amazing it's a three minute timer was on and I think you hit it at like two minutes, 59.8 seconds. I mean, it was like you just went, drop the mic right right as the timer ended. It was very good. Your ability to talk about something very complicated in a way that people could digest uh, is unique. I just think that someone, a scientist who can communicate that clearly, concisely, and just with a little flair, because it was fun too, it, that's the kind of thing a lot of organizations are looking for and need because they're always talking to people who don't live the science. Speaking of you know, maybe looking for opportunities here, what are you seeking to do for a living after you do get that degree?
1: I've been spending a lot of time recently thinking about this and it's been difficult because so many things that I've been learning about so many jobs and careers sound so interesting. So I think in general, I'm, I'm interested in drug development. I'm interested in the pharmaceutical industry. And at this point, I, I know that there are just so many opportunities and careers in that space that I don't know about, because the only place that you can get a PhD is in academia. And I've been fortunate enough uh, in the lab that I'm in uh, with Dr. P.D. Chandani. He's really helped me to grow my network and expand my view to all different types of careers. Um, but I think until I can immerse myself sort of in, in the pharmaceutical development world, i There there are just so many paths that I don't know about, Um, but what I do know is uh, I I really like communicating science. Um, I like making a story out of it. I like the challenge of speaking to different types of audiences, uh, particularly if they don't have a science background. I think one of my just deep passions is public understanding of science in general. You know, I think I'm decent at experimental design and data analysis, uh, but I think that I I think my my real skill set is, is looking at the data, putting it into a story that whatever audience in front of me can understand. So so more specifically, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, medical affairs. That sounds exciting to me. And just other other careers that maybe consulting, other careers that would require someone to have this deep knowledge of science, but more so than that, be able to, to talk about it and to explain it to, to people that need to understand.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things that I know in my career, it, just being able to speak science, you know, read a paper, understand it, deconstruct it a little bit, and then talk to somebody about it was a huge value. I didn't get my doctorate, but I succeeded through you know by being able to talk to people about science and understanding it so that that skill set is something to to lean on and it's a strength i mean it, obviously we saw that with your 3 minute talk you're able to take something complicated understand it and then communicate it for so others can understand it i think you've got tons of opportunities here um you're you're standing at one of those gateways where it's like you know well i get to make choices again I remember being there and and wondering what do I do next? How do I get started? You know, everybody wants experience. You've clearly got experience that that's not directly in a corporate setting, but the experience that you've had and the way you've you've managed your your academic work so far is a ton of experience. Let me turn the tables around here in this interview setting. What questions do you have for me, someone who's, you know, long ago gone through this process and what what do you need what do you want to find out so you can navigate through this better
1: yeah i think I think you framed it really beautifully. Uh, two things that are really on my mind right now that I imagine or hope that other people at my stage are also thinking about is you know as you say, we do have some experience at this point, this really intense five years is, has been training, but I also just feel the sense of like I've never had a real job, and it's time to go out in the real world, and I'm, you know, exhausted from all of this training, but really have zero experience in this this field that I want to get into, and that's kind of scary. Uh, And then the other thing is, you know, now it's time to make a decision, and I feel like I'm sort of at this fork in the road, so to speak, and if I go down this path, I will end up here. And if I go down this other path, I may end up in another place. Um, and it, it just seems like there are a lot of really big decisions to be made right now. And I'm wondering from you, what's, what's the biggest mistake that you see people make at my stage when, when they're trying to figure out what to do next?
0: So let me address the first thing that you said about, you know, that stepping into the real world of work. Training continues. Training happens throughout your life. If you if you remain a continuous learner, life is exciting and and opportunities just keep opening up. So it feels like you're finishing training. You're just moving to the next year, the next step. And so, to get to your second question, I think that picking a job which helps you continue that training to start to apply what you've learned um, is 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 a a decision factor to weigh in there. What, how, does this, how does this take me to the next step of something I've not done? I don't, don't want to go to something that I'm just comfortable doing. And I think that's the biggest mistake I see people make is they come in, particularly at a PhD level, and thinking they've got it solved. They've done it. They've, they've just accomplished this huge human achievement of adding knowledge to the world. But then they get dumped into a culture where there's all sorts of other pressures and things happening. And so I think that the biggest mistake is to, to, to like assume you've got it done and that everything is about what you've been studying. Because it's not about the what you've been studying. It's been, what did you learn about studying things that you can now apply to these other important problems that whatever employer has in front of you. I think that you know, locking in on something and saying, I'm always going to be working on this can be can be difficult um, and problematic. I think another sort of mistake or a place where you've got experience and you explained how you dealt with it, which is you were the second a second-year student and you were the senior person in the lab. And that gave you a little bit of a, you know, how do you supervise? How do you help others? How do you mentor others? I think that there's not a lot of training around that, but that's one of the skills that people come in and assume because they've done this other thing, they can just supervise. Well, actually, you got to work on that one pretty pretty diligently to get your, your lab or your group or whatever it is that wherever you end up, you know, working well. And that's whether you're a supervisor or not. You got to build those people skills I have total confidence that you've got the underlying people skills. It's now refining it with experience. The other thing is maybe looking too far down the line. Like, where do I want to end up? Like when I'm retired, too much is going to change then. I would think about it as, you know, I've got a decision. There's a couple options I have here one which is one that'll take advance me grow me uh, help me to the next job so like look a little ways down the road to the next job where could it lead to and then way between well if that one leads me to to x and this one leads me to y and that one leads me to z have i cut off any options with any of those so look at it the other way like have i taken myself out of play for something you never really have cuz you can always go you know rewind a couple years and and start over to kind of have those in mind, Uh, you can find yourself, you know, on a great career track that you didn't want to be on. (laughs) And that's not fun. You know, when you say, Oh, wow, I'm going to, I'm going to be, you know, the best, you know, at something that, that I really don't like doing. Don't do that. Follow, follow passion, follow curiosity. My wife always was amazed at how enthused I was about my work. And she could tell when I had lost that enthusiasm when it might have been time to start, you know, checking out what jobs were posted and maybe make a switch or maybe go get more, more schooling, because the joy would go away. And so that's something to also keep in mind is that's going to happen. Each job will run its course and it'll be time to do something new. So none of this is permanent. You're not going to be a you know entry-level PhD scientist forever. A couple years into it, you're going to say, Oh another decision, more options. What can I do here? So I, that's what I just advise, keep your eyes open and, and keep having joy at work and one and worry when you don't have joy at work.
1: Yeah. It's comforting to hear that, especially the part about uh, taking this decision as sort of bite size instead of planning. What do I want to do right before I retire, (laughs) figure out the first job and then maybe the second one.
0: Yeah. And it also speaking of that. So the at the end of retirement or even later, you know, when you're when you're saying goodbye to your family from life, you know, that's the kind of thing you think about long term. What, what do I want people to remember me for? It's not going to be your work. It's going to be how you work. It's going to be how you interact. It's going to be your relationships. So, oh, good. I don't have to think about that question. I don't have to think about what I do for work for that long in life. I just need to bring that answer of how I work, you know, what, what your values are all the way through every job that you, you work on. That will predict great success if you stick with your values and you're comfortable in your skin at all times. So I want to thank you so much for spending time and sharing with us today. If someone wanted to connect with you, perhaps a, you know, prospective employer, where can they find you?
1: So I've been trying to be really active on LinkedIn. uh, So someone could definitely find me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to have more connections Um, or just my email address. It's Lane L-A-Y-N-E dash Rodden R-O-D-D-E-N at O-U-H-S-C dot E-D-U.
0: Excellent. So thank you once again, Lane. Uh, I really enjoyed this discussion. I hope you did too.
1: Yeah, the pleasure is
0: mine, Kevin. Thanks for the opportunity. Please subscribe to Improbable Developments wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends to give us a listen.